saw my fair lady. I rewrote the rewrite. I sort of enjoyed it. I told out the story. I'm meeting an agent. We'll all get together and suddenly we're opening doors. Singing, here we are. We're filling up days on a dime. The faraway shores looking not too far. We're following every star. There's not enough time. Welcome to episode four of Take Nor Leave Me, a podcast about the fine line between success and failure in musical theatre. Um, this is our first series, it's called The Hitmakers, and we're exploring the lesser known musicals of some of the biggest names in theatre. I'm Zoe, I'm your host, and each episode I'm joined by another lover of musicals, and this episode I'm joined by the moulder of young minds and the super delightful Ellie Meacham. What an introduction! Love that. I need to put that on my CV. I try and make people smile with my introductions. I'm going to run out of adjectives soon because I don't know that many. (laughs) Would you tell us about your relationship with musicals and how you started to love them? Oh my goodness. Okay, so I guess as a kid I used to watch all the kind of golden age musicals, films. I started doing kind of dancing and singing and drama when I was about five. Young, isn't it? Some of my friends were like three when they started. So yes, then we did lots of medleys. So I seemed like I didn't do a full musical until I was at uni. Um, We did lots of medleys. So I got to know lots of musicals kind of through their music rather than the productions. So something like Miss Saigon, for example, I was obsessed with. You can't do the whole of Miss Saigon in haste. Oh no. That would be weird. Um, I was obsessed with, obsessed with it. And then I saw it and I was so disappointed. And then I went, when I went to university, I ended up doing full musicals and directing them and choreographing them. And I was president of Uh, the Musical Theatre Society. Good. Um, And we went up to Edinburgh every summer. It's just been pure enjoyment since then. I'm not going to ask you what your favourite musical is because those types of questions are awful. Yeah. And there's no answer. But do you have a musical that you love that can give us a sense of like what sort of style of musicals you like? Oh, this is hard. I mean, I've got got a few. So I I would say that my absolute favourite is The Wild Party by Andrew Lipper. Oh, okay. Nice. I love that musical. Um, And I directed it at uni, which is maybe, oh, I have good associations with it. There are massive issues with it, but the music is amazing and it feels a bit fossy in the way, yeah. kind of choreography and things like that, who's one of my absolute faves. But I guess, I guess it'd have to be West Side Story because yeah. that's got everything. There's no song in West Side Story that if I was listening to the whole album, I'd like skip past. Exactly, exactly. And there are moments in the Wild Party that I would, and there are things like, I love Jason Robert Brown, but I definitely, there are only certain songs that I listen to continuously forever. Yeah. But you're right. I think the whole, the whole score of West Side Story is I'd listen to. Yeah. I realise I've never answered this question on the podcast. So I'm oh. going to, I've decided what I'm going to do from now on, from this episode yeah. forward, is I'm always going to say a musical that I like. This episode's one I'm going to say is In the Heights, because I think I flip between it, whether In the Heights or Hamilton is my favourite Lin-Manuel musical. But I think because I like reality so much, I like finding beautiful stuff within yeah. realism. Yeah, I think yeah. In the Heights actually does win over Hamilton. It's a bit problematic now because we've had people say their answers and there aren't that many answers. But what, in your personal opinion, do you think a musical needs to be a success? Oh my... I think it has to have, I mean, it has to have a good story. For me, it definitely cannot be based in the countryside. 
seven brides for seven brothers. How dare you? I met not on board with at all. You don't need a hoedown number near near you. No, No. and I I love carousel to a certain degree. And then I'm like, this is mad. I've never really realised that about me before. Is it carousel a fishing? Fishing town. Anyway, that's a diversion. That's a diversion. That's... Yeah, and it's like clam, clam, clam. It's like clam. Yeah, I'm like, what yeah. is happening? This was a real nice clam bake. We're mighty glad we came. The riddles we ate were good, you bet. The company was the same. Our hearts are warm, our bellies are full, and we are feeling So this episode, we are talking about the granddaddy himself, composer Mr. Stephen Sondheim. Uh, Sondheim is one of those writers who I think is quite Marmite for people. So for some, he's like a genius and he's like the most prophetic musical writer of the 20th century. And then I think for others, he's quite cynical. He's a bit overly cerebral. It's a bit too much thinking. Sure. Not enough jazz hands. There's sure. no jazz hands in Sondheim, no I'd argue. I um, think Sondheim is like, if you're a musical theatre geek, you love Sondheim. Especially when you hear some of the songs from these shows that we're going to talk about. He's very good. So much so that Stephen Sondheim has an Oscar. He has eight Tony Awards. He has eight Grammy Awards. And he has a Pulitzer Prize. That's yeah. amazing. So he won a, a Pulitzer Prize for Sunday in the Park with George. And there's only 10 musicals in the history of the Pulitzer Prize that have won the Pulitzer for Best Drama. Surprised it's that many. Yeah, it's about one every decade. Wow. I am, I am quite surprised. Because I feel sometimes that people just look down on musical theatre. Some of his biggest hits include Sweeney Todd, Company and Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, also, personal favourite, uh, he wrote five songs for Madonna in the film Dick Tracy. I did not, also did not know that. I'm going to write that down. The shows we're going to be talking about are Anyone Can Whistle, book and direction by Arthur Lawrence. Merrily We Roll Along, book by George Firth, originally directed by Hal Prince. And Passion, book and original direction by James Lapine. I'm hugely surprised. This is, I think this is a first for the podcast if somebody's seen a show we're talking about. I argue this is not a flop. How can it be a flop? No, I would definitely I'm struggle. Well, I will. I will tell, tell you. Me. But not tell before me. I tell you about anyone can whistle. <laughs> which I know you don't really want to talk about, but we're talking about <laughs> it anyway. So a bit of background about Sondheim. At 10 years old, Sondheim went to school and became friends with James Hammerstein, whose father was Oscar Hammerstein II. He became a bit of a surrogate father for Sondheim, who lived with his mum because his parents had divorced. So Sondheim himself says that if Oscar Hammerstein II had been a architect, Sondheim would have been an architect as well. Even oh, if he hadn't been particularly talented at it, he wanted to just emulate that man that he really loved. So Oscar Hammerstein, I'm just going to call him that, I can't keep Please. bothered to keep saying the second, convinced Sondheim to work on the first two shows of his career um, as just a lyricist so that he could work with these amazing people and learn about musical theatre so those shows were West Side Story and Gypsy and he was 25 years old when he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story and Gypsy which are some of the best musicals ever Mm. it's insane Uh, it's crazy are you slightly Um, jealous as well so you seem to be a bit 
there's so many i said this in the last episode there's so many people who do so much stuff at a young age and i yeah i can't hold back or disguise my absolute seething jealousy of these people so they just have more talent than me but i still can't get over that <laughs> yeah. with west side story and you might not know this i just wondered test me did the lyrics come first or did the music come first they wrote together but i think a lot of the music was obviously like half done yeah but he yeah they wrote a lot of music together because it, might, it, said, might, it must have been like simultaneous because so, something like yeah. america or something like yeah so he says about west side story they wrote it all together in terms yeah. of like the lyrics and then with Gypsy, he was given the book oh. and he went away and did. It's like a proper internship. Yeah, exactly. It like really was. Task, and now have all these other tasks. Yes. And, and he, I don't think he'd have chosen to do those things. Hmm. Even though it was Bernstein, like Jerome Robbins and all those people to work with, I still don't think he would have chosen it had Oscar Hammerstein not been like, you aren't ready to do a big show. Hmm. Even though you think you are, you're not. <laughs> so interesting i love that listening to your elders he didn't want to be just a lyricist though so he was determined not to write lyrics for somebody else's music after gypsy so then he came up with his first solo show which was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum which is uh based on the farces of plautus like sure sure so yeah that was a hit and it ran for 964 performances which is a lot uh and it won the tony for best musical but sondheim himself wasn't lavish with praise for the show people didn't love the score they sort of loved the idea of it but not yeah the music necessarily uh and he wasn't nominated for a tony for best original score in 1961 the next sondheim project was announced in the new york times and it was then called the Natives Are Restless, which is just the worst title I've ever heard. I, I read that and I was I just watched. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oof, 1960s. <laughs> but then we nobody heard anything else about it until 1963, so two years later. Uh, and this is when Sondheim discovered that Arthur Lawrence had a real fear and like loathing of backers auditions. Writers and composers have to go to people, play a bit of the show and say, would you like to put your money into it? And he didn't want to do those. So he'd done none. So no money had been raised. Oh, no. So sometime took on the auditions and he played 30 backers auditions in like a month and raised $350,000. So, yeah, some of the backers included Irving Berlin, Richard Rogers, and Jules Stein, which also sort of upped the pressure on the show. So it wasn't just like sometimes next show. It was also this show that was backed by all these amazing mm -hmm. people. Did they back it just because of some time? Just because he was amazing? I, mean, in that I think they must have liked... The, the combination of them is probably quite good. Hmm. And they must have liked something about it. 350000 isn't... But in 1963, I imagine it was quite a lot of money. Hmm. I need to get my little calculator out. In today's money, what is... <laughs> Sondheim had worked with Arthur Lawrence before on West Side Story. So they knew each other. So that's they were sort of comfortable... Yeah, it was like, it was a good start, but a bumpy sort of haphazardy start. So this musical's a bit of a rarity because it's not, it's an original idea, which sometimes doesn't do very often. Nearly all of his musicals are based off something, whether it's a book or a play or a film or a person. Yeah, but this has no original inspiration. 
as you can tell when I'm about to tell you the story. It's described as a satire on conformity and the insanity of the so-called sane, which I just think as a byline is too much. <laughs> I can't see it on a poster. So it's set in an American town, not in the countryside, and it's gone bankrupt due to the fact that the town's main source of income is that they make a product that everybody wants but doesn't break. So now everyone in the world has one and they don't need to make any more. That's the concept. It's like such an intricate backstory so like, that then never comes into the show again. The only successful business in the town is the town's asylum, which is known as the cookie jar. And in an attempt to get more visitors to the town, the corrupt mayoress, Cora Hoover, she comes up with a fake miracle, which is water that comes from a rock that will, like, like a lord's thing. I'm just shrugging. Sure. So the only person in town who doubts this miracle is a cooking jar nurse who's called Faye Apple. Such a good musical theatre name. In an attempt to disprove the miracle, Faye takes all 49 inmates of the cookie jar to the the rock for them to be cured. And then when one of the mayoress's cronies sees this happening, he goes to try to stop her. While that's happening, the inmates merge with the townsfolk and no one can tell who's who which i don't understand because one surely they'd have some sort of uniform Mm. two surely you just go i don't know you who are you like you haven't lived here but no they merge and no one knows who's sane and who's insane so problematic Um, all of this at the same time as that commotion happening Faye disappears and she disappears with all the hospital records with her. So there's no way of working out who came from the asylum and who lives in the town. And but this is 1960s. 1963. So the records would all be hard copies as well. Two wheelie suitcases with her up to the rock. So the head doctor of the asylum tells the mayoress, no, there's absolutely no way of telling them apart. But... There's a new assistant who's coming to the asylum and maybe he can work it out. So a stranger turns up, asks for directions to the cookie jar. They say, oh, you must be the new assistant. His name is J. Bowden Hapgood. Also another classic 60s musical theatre name. So he starts sorting people into group A and group one. But he won't tell people which group is which. All the people start to have an argument about, like, which group is actually the group of sane people. After the interval, another stranger arrives. And she's French. And she's called the Lady from Lords. (laughs) But she's really Faye Apple in disguise. Oh my gosh. And she's there to investigate the miracle. Faye Apple's so boring. And this is the point about Faye Apple is that she's very uptight. And she's Uh. very... Boring. That's her character trait. <laughs> what a part to play. I mean, that's... And then the you one. get to go crazy with the lady from Lords. And then there's Acts 2 and 3, over which just a whole load of stuff happens that I'm not going to go into, because it's all like, no. so-and-so takes the thing, and then he... Oh, yeah, and it includes, you'll be glad to know, an extended ballet sequence for all the inmates of the cookie jar. Of course oh, it does. <laughs> but basically the end is, townspeople are happy... And Faye and Jay Bowden Hapgood get together. That's all you need to know. And he is obviously an inmate of the cookie jar, not the new assistant. Okay, off plot alone, the bad plot synopsis I gave to you, would you 
invest in this musical had you some money to spend it is convoluted i mean it's almost i mean that's mild putting it mildly as well mm. i think it's as convoluted as um national treasure starring nick cage <laughs> i would yeah. be very interested in seeing it maybe reading the book just to see how they deal with how do you make it so that you're not just doing woo we're crazy and i get it i get the point is like how can you say who's mad like we're all bad that's a line from the show he says we're all bad here it's like alice in wonderland sort of thing but also what maybe it had that kind of like 1960s style of kind of surrealism and block colors and things like that yeah but just on the music alone it's a no-no for me <laughs> oh so angela lansbury except the lead role as Maris Cora Hoover. It was her first Broadway show. She'd been on telly and film. She didn't particularly like the script and she was quite worried about her ability to sing the music that was given to her. But because she wanted to work with Sondheim and Lawrence so much, she took the job. Arthur Lawrence wanted Barbara Streisand for the role of Faye Apple, but she turned it down to be in Funny Girl, which I think was a wise choice. Well done, Bob. So they signed Lee Remick, who most people maybe know from The Omen. But she had previously been on Broadway before she was in films. She was in some Hitchcock films as well. This interview that I watched with Angela Lansbury, she talks about Herb Green, who is the musical director. It's really interesting watching her talk about it because she's trying to be as diplomatic as she possibly can. But what her eyes are saying is, this man was a total dick. <laughs> so she describes his technique, and I use very strong verbal inverted commas. His technique would be that he would hold your throat with his hand while you sang. And if he felt like he didn't get a good enough, loud enough sound, he'd give it a bit of a squeeze. <gasps> so basically his technique was strangling. That's what that's called. Angela Lansbury goes on to say it. She listens to the cast recording of her voice and she is physically pained by it because she can Did hear she her voice. I think she says she just, all she says in the interview is that she didn't sing again for a year after that show. But he did it to her and he did it to Lee Remick and it just made the two of them terrified, but also just shouty, just really shouty singers. And you mm. can, you can hear it when you listen to Angela Lansbury on the cast recording, you're like, oh, that's a, what, oh, ow, that sounds like it hurts. And I imagine it did. Well, it doesn't sound like her either. It doesn't sound like her at all. And I think that, you know, if she's singing in a way that isn't natural to her singing, especially when you listen to her doing something like Sweeney Todd, where she obviously is comfortable, it's, it sounds very different. Uh, okay, so we're going to listen to a bit of it. We're going to listen to two songs, um, which are two of the most popular songs from the show now. So like throughout history, these are the songs that have stayed the most prominent. They're used a lot in people's albums and they're used a lot on cabaret nights. So we're going to sing, uh, we're going to sing. <laughs> we're going to sing, Ellie, we're going to sing. <laughs> I don't have recordings, so we're just going to sing them. <laughs> Can you imagine? We're going to listen to There Won't Be Trumpets, sung by Lee Remick. And um, everybody says don't, which is sung oh. by <laughs> sung by Harry Gardino, both from the original Broadway cast recording of Anyone Can Listen. There won't be trumpets or bolts of fire to say he's 
Everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says don't, it isn't right, don't, it isn't nice. Everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says don't walk on the grass, don't disturb the peace, don't skate on the ice. Well, I say do, I say walk on the grass it was meant to feel, I say sail. Tilt at the windmill, and if you fail, you fail. I mean, you can hear it sometime. You can hear yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think both of them sound quite sometimes. The other popular song from it is the title song, Anyone Can Whistle. But I have a habit of just choosing the title song, and it makes me think that people think I don't listen to them. I just go, oh, I'll just choose that. So I wanted to prove that I've listened to halfway through, <laughs> through oh. the show. This is the first time on this podcast that I've come across this, that I think the recording the original broadway cast recording is really bad mm. for me that's the like i'm not i'm not saying the oh that's the only thing bad with the show but i think this is noticeable just from having listened to quite a few cast recordings now yeah. um that this one isn't as good there is another one there was a carnegie hall performance of it there's a recording of that one as well which is noticeably better and i think it's just it's weird how forced this one sounds. Everyone sounds like they're really trying really hard. And I blame it all on Herb Green. The, the like longevity of shows depend on the original past recording, wouldn't it? I mean, I think especially with shows like these, with shows that people consider flops, there mm. is a lot of like mythology around them. So yeah. I think they live up a bit in hype of just people go, oh, if you'd been there, you would have had a totally different experience. I mean, it's quite non-Sontai because it has so much plot. It has yeah. so much stuff going on and it is a character-led. So you could argue that that's why it maybe didn't do as well because it, he isn't doing what he is gifted at creating. And an interesting thing about that is There Won't Be Trumpets, which is now like one of the most popular songs from that show, was cut in previews. <laughs> it's like, who knows? who knows what makes something good? The show went to Philadelphia to do its pre-Broadway tryouts uh, and it was there from March 2nd to March 21st in 1964. During tryouts there was a lot of criticism that the show's message was quite trite and that the absurdist style that they'd chosen to do it in was quite difficult to follow. So kind of this idea that is it naturalistic or is it absurd and you've got two, those two things sort of fighting each other a bit. Yeah. But Arthur Lawrence wasn't taking this on board. So he focused on restaging lots of bits rather than rewriting anything hmm. from tryouts to Broadway. In between tryouts and Broadway, they lost one of their supporting actors, um, Henry Lasco, who was playing Comptroller Shub, another good musical theatre name, who's like the Maris's right hand man. So he suffered a heart attack during the show's out-of-town tryouts and he was replaced by an actor called Gabriel Dell. Now, according to Sondheim, Sondheim has commented on this and he says, Angela Lansbury in the out-of-town tryouts was so insecure on stage and unhappy with her performance that we considered replacing her. Ironically, it soon became apparent that it had been Lasco, an old pro who had made her feel like an amateur. The minute his much less confident understudy took over, she felt free to blossom, which she spectacularly did. Now, I struggle with this quote because I just find it hard to accept that Angela Lansbury who was a start like was a name people weren't like angela who was this person who was like i couldn't possibly go and do theater at all i'm super scared 
but as soon as you get rid of that man over there, I'll be amazing. <laughs> Maybe because she was like realizing <laughs> this is awful. She interestingly doesn't mention that at all in her interview about the show either. Anyone opened at the Majestic Theatre on Broadway on April 4th, 1964. And the show received quite varied reviews. So some people were like, great, 60s musical fan tabadozy. Some people weren't. The New York Times said, the book lacks the fantasy that would make this idea work. And Lawrence's staging has not improved matters. Mr. Sondheim has written several pleasing songs, but not enough of them to give the musical wings. The performers yell rather than talk and run rather than walk. Which is all kind of stuff that we've said without mm. having seen it, which is weird. Anyone can whistle closed after a run of 12 previews and nine performances. It's Ouch. really tough. It's never had a Broadway revival. It's had a couple of London off West End productions. It's had a couple of regional American productions. Uh, there was the Carnegie Hall concert of it, of which I'm quite excited about it because Madeline Kahn plays the mayoress and Bernadette Peters plays Faye Apple. So I'm like, oh, that's... I mean, I'd want to see those two do something. Yeah. So, yes. New York City Centre encores, which are like staged concert versions of shows. And they did one of this, which was... Sutton Foster as Faye Apple, Donna nice. Murphy as the mayoress. So after Anyone Can Whistle, Sondheim started to collaborate with Hal Prince. And together they created some of the most celebrated musicals of the 20th century. That being said, all those celebrated shows, so that's Company, Follies, A Little Night Music and Sweeney Todd, they had different levels of success. None of them have ever made close to anywhere near any type of longest running show list if that's how we mark success. But they've all made people's favourite musicals list. They're all so up there in terms of what people consider the best. So it's like this weird mix of like super, super successful, but also like a little bit underdoggy, which is kind of a weird place to be in. Is that the Marmite effect again? Never gonna be, he's never gonna write Wicked. That's not yes. gonna happen. And I think this, somebody said a really interesting thing about Stephen Sondheim, which was part of him really wishes he was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like he'd never say that to you, but a tiny part of him wishes that he, that he could do that. Mm. that he could just write that thing that everyone goes yes and it runs for decades ever since into the woods that broke my heart <laughs> um was this more that their music their plays first and foremost i've always felt that they're acted which is interesting because he doesn't write the book really interesting yeah sondheim and prince first worked together on west side story where prince was a co-producer uh, Sondheim was Prince's best man like so they're really close and so they had an 11 year collaboration and this 11 year collaboration would nearly end with the the next show we're going to talk about <laughs> so it's uh, so the next show we're going to talk about is Merrily We Roll Along based on a Kaufman Hart play of the same name but the idea for the musical came from Judy Prince how Prince's wife, who suggested that Prince and Sondheim should write something about kids, about the dreams that you can only have when you're young. I'm not sure the play was the best starting point because uh, although it received good reviews when it came out, it failed financially hugely. I think maybe because it had a cast of 55. It was a play that had a cast of 55 people. When I read that, I was like, doing what? Did they say things or were they just literally there to be like, and they went to a huge party? 
Ta-da! The play's never been revived on Broadway since it opened in 1934. The plot, like a lot of Sondheim shows, is more about the character's journey than what happens to them. Yeah. Um, but roughly, the show is about the lives of three friends, Franklin Shepard, Charlie Kringus, and Mary Flynn. Their names do change there's been various versions of this script, so their names change. Sometimes Franklin is Frank. I'm just going to call him Franklin. So they're all determined to make their mark on the theatre industry. And the show's trick, if you like, is that it all takes place backwards. So we start the show with the characters and they're in their mid-40s. And then we go back in time till the end of the show where we see them as they've just graduated college and they're starting out in New York City. So Franklin ends up as a cynical, twice-divorced film producer, but starts out as an optimistic composer. Charlie, who starts out as a playwright, is still a playwright in his 40s, but has lost his best friend along the way. And Mary, who was their neighbour and had fallen for Franklin in in her 20s, has become a famous theatre critic but also a functioning alcoholic. So, you know, super jolly, Sondheim stuff. I think that's the thing about Merrily. And in, in general, I think one of the reasons why I li- really love Sondheim is because it's so sad. I, I think that Merrily, because it's reversed, almost becomes the most hopeful. My theory about why this might be a flop, which I still don't believe, but my theory is that maybe, even though it is the saddest, it kind of ends the most hopefully so possibly people are like oh well that's weird it's not sad enough any more sad <laughs> maybe maybe in the 80s people were like i came to a sometime show wanting to cry and i only cried in act one <laughs> oh i didn't know it was the 80s that's interesting so maybe that's something to do with the context then that they're like we don't want to see people fail it is a idea uh, like a plot device that we know works like the main thing I think of is Betrayal by Harold Pinter that does the yes. same thing, like it goes backwards. I don't think it's crazy. I think it's a good idea. It's contained. Yeah. Like it's almost like, oh, of course, sometime. Okay. It seems, exactly. It seems a really good fit for them. It seems mm. really interesting. It's not something they've done before. It's going into something different, but an area that we think they could succeed in. So it all seems to make sense. I will clarify now that most of my, and when I say most of my, I mean all of my research for this show has been done by watching the brilliant documentary, Best Worst Thing That Could Ever Happen, which is made by the original Charlie in Merrily We Roll Along, Lonnie Price. So I would urge you to go and watch it because if you love theatre and you love the magic that it can produce, I think this documentary describes that feeling so well. In 1980, Prince and Sondheim started casting, but they weren't looking for names this time. They decided that the only way to get the hope and the drive of youth was to cast teenagers. And these teenagers would play the characters all the way through the show until their 40s. So they started looking for a group of young performers, most of whom would be making their Broadway debut in Merrily We Roll Along. They did an informal reading in front of backers and creatives, and just off that, they found two of their lead cast members, Jim Weissenbach as Franklin and Lonnie Price as Charlie. They were both 22. (laughs) (laughs) Totally fine, not jealous. So Lonnie Price is a self confessed uber fan of both Sondheim and Prince. So much so that he put his bar mitzvah money into their production of Pacific Overtures, which was the show before they did memory, which I love so much. I love the idea that you would be so obsessed with Broadway that you'd want to put your $200 that you got for your bar mitzvah 
yeah. into a Broadway show and become like one of that many long list of producers. And before his big break in Merrily, he worked for Prince as an office boy. And I think his story just seems so typically like one of those a no one to a star type stories. But I'm not sure how many people would know who Lonnie Price was, if anyone. Um, so there is a video in the documentary of the 22-year-old Lonnie Price talking about the opportunity that he's been given to play Charlie. And he says this, the whole thing is the most important thing in my life. The very thought of doing it is thrilling. This show, if I never do anything else in the rest of my life, I will have had this moment. If I get hit by a truck the night after opening night, I don't think I'll care. And it's just so lovely, but also so like, I think the thing that makes the documentary even more heartbreaking is that the older Lonnie Price is watching that video and you're watching him react to that. Oh, meta. It's merrily. It is. He's very clever. So for the rest of the cast, they put an ad in the papers that just said, open call for the new Sondheim Prince show. 5,000 people applied. (laughs) The whole of New York City. Everyone was there. Yeah, in the documentary, it's like watching a chorus line in real life. It looks so brutal. And it looks especially brutal because these actors are children. They look like they're about 12. They got themselves a cast of 28, and it was made up of performers ranging from 16 to 25. So Anne Morrison made up the trio of leads, and she played Mary. Fun fact. Uh, Merrily was the Broadway debut of a very young Jason Alexander, who is now most famous as George in Seinfeld. they had a cast but Sondheim wasn't ready he was finding it very difficult to get into that sort of mindset of a 20 year old for the latter half of the show so basically the cast just hung out for six months and got to know each other and became friends while Sondheim wrote and rewrote songs wow um I don't think they got paid for that no I think they were just like they'll just like we'll call you in June We're going to listen to something from the original cast recording of Merrily We Roll Along. This is a tough one because there are so many really, really good songs in the soundtrack. But I settled on the title song because I think it's quite a non-Sondheim song. Like it sounds like Sondheim, but it's not really the sort of song you hear very often in his shows. And it also appears as a motive throughout. So every time they change year, they play this song. They play it, they sing it. (laughs) They're just... And also, I just really love it. This is the original Broadway cast of Merrily We Roll Along singing Merrily We Roll Along. What did you have to go through? How did you get there from here, Mr. Shepherd? two songs so would you like to choose a song i mean our time is probably the one that kills me but i also love um not a day goes by but the i like the reprise which i like that so we're also going to play not a day goes by (laughs) sung by jim walton and ad morrison as the days go by 
I keep thinking, when does it end? That it can't get much better, much longer. But it only gets better and stronger and deeper and nearer and simpler and freer and richer and clearer. And no, not a day goes by, not a blessed day, but you're still somehow part of my life. And you won't go away And I have to say If you did, I'd die Such a good song. Genuinely think that Mary Lee Roll Along has some of the best songs that Sondheim writes. Because it's so human. Sometimes, I think Sondheim shows are a bit like they find the humanity in really big people. It's like Sweeney Todd, you're like, that's no one I can relate to, but I understand that emotion behind it. Or Follies is like these big characters who are, you know, faded glitz, but we understand. Whereas this, this is just, even though st- it's still in theatre, especially when they're kids, they're just kids. I think, especially listening to the original Broadway cast and knowing how young they all are, Anne Morrison's voice is incredible. You couldn't tell what age she is just by listening to her. She has this incredibly, like, rich, but also ageless voice. She talks in the documentary about that Sondheim asked her how high she could sing, and she kept just singing, like, higher and higher. And I don't notice it. I don't notice that she's singing particularly high. I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's just like singy talkies. That's just how she sounds, right? She's not even trying. Sounds so effortless. That's just how she communicates. It's so interesting that they cast them so young. That was his first instinct to do that. Whenever I've heard it or when I saw it, that was not the case. No, and, and it never has. It's the only time it's been done. I think it's more poignant, I think, if the, if the actors are older. I think it's quite a hard thing in any theatrical thing to have someone play, you know, two, three different ages because it's a very visual medium. And if we've seen you 10 minutes before and then you come t- back 10 minutes later in a wig, yeah. it's quite hard for us to keep re-entering that world of suspension of disbelief. Like, of course, that's all theatre is, but we're kind of, it's kind of like you sit down, you take your first five minutes to get into it. And you're like, okay, I'm there now. I'm with you. And if that keeps changing, that becomes very difficult to keep kind of like re-going there. Going, oh, okay, now they're, now they're here. I think the same for the actors as well. I don't know if you're, if you're 25, how you can play kind of the heartbreak of life that it is, as sometimes tells us it is. Um, and when you're 45, I don't know if you know that well enough. Because also I think you see some of these people. So Jason Alexander, for example, plays Joe, who's the Broadway producer. And there are definitely times when they're doing acting of, I'm an old man acting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's good, it's good level of that acting. It's better than the average person could do. But it's still a young person going, I have to act a certain yeah. way because I'm an old, how do old men act? Yeah, and I think if I was an audience member watching them do it in that way, you know, I'd probably think, what a great, performance of an old man that this young person is playing and then but when we got to the end I don't think I would be as almost heartbroken as I was with with the older actors yeah. I'm actually more concerned I'm not, also like, surprised that there's never or not a big production that's used double casts because that would seem the logical thing to me would be to use 
like Follies does. Here's the young you, here's the old you, and there's nice moments of like overlapping. But no, anyway, teenagers is where we are. We're with teenagers. Um, so they had six weeks of rehearsal, but they had no out-of-town tryouts. They decided that they'd use just New York time oh. instead of trying, which is odd because it had a big budget. It was a very widely publicised show. So it seems very strange to say we're not going to go out of town. Either massively, massively confident in it or just thought this is very much a New York. I think it's the first one. One of my favourite moments from the documentary is um, cast member Terry Finn is asked, what did you want most during Merrily? And she says without like dropping a beat, she said, I wanted to sleep with Kevin Klein." <laughs> and that's it. That's her answer. And I think it's so perfect because I think that is so the truth. They loved that show. They loved that process, but they weren't thinking in that moment that this was going to be anything other than like, a great time and a show that they were in and this was their show and I just think it's so it's like you were saying it's so better to be able to see that. It's really unsurprising that Stephen Sondheim wrote Our Time when he was hanging out with this yeah. group that it's like oh it belongs to us and like I'm just gonna do what I want and live in the moment and yeah the rehearsals were very fun everyone across the board says how much fun they had on them but I think they were also very hard so one of the cast David Caddy says we got halfway through and I thought maybe I'm out of my debt because with the exception of Lonnie and Jim, we were amateurs. Because they didn't, they don't know. What do they know? They literally like two of them were still at school, still at physical school, not like uni, school. They were 16 and they were like doing their homework in the dressing rooms and being in a Broadway show. And not being in a Broadway show, being like that kid who comes on for 10 minutes, being like the ensemble of a Broadway <laughs> singing and dancing show. You know, it's obviously easy to say with the power of hindsight that everything was maybe a bit too wonderful. But Hal Prince himself said he'd never been on a show where he went home every night after rehearsal, sure that they were working on a success. And that's and he's directed Phantom of the Opera and he produced Fiddler on the Roof and he's never like, had that. Hal, you've done too many of these and you should know better. Don't be infected by the joy and joie de vivre of youth they're idiots they don't know what they're doing you are in your late 40s and you <laughs> need to be cynical for the rest of them this is so incredibly meta i can't get over <laughs> yeah, it I know. but you know i have to say i don't think prince was on his top form because before the first preview he decided he was going to scrap all the costumes and replace them with different colored sweatshirts with their character names on which just from my costume point of view, is a terrible idea because you can't read words on clothes further back than about row D. Oh. So anybody else is just seeing a coloured sweatshirt with something on. They don't, it doesn't say anything. If you look at the photos of this original production, it looks like not even a particularly good, but an average uni production. I bet it does. And it, obviously, that, obviously it looks like that because they're all that age but it doesn't look like a Broadway show. It doesn't look like any sort of Broadway show I've ever seen. Alvin Theatre on October 8th, 1981. That first preview, all the cast remembered rows and rows of people leaving, of singing to the backs of audience members as they left the theatre. But don't, don't worry, don't worry, not could happen in previews, especially if you end up having 44 previews. A typical number of previews for a Broadway show is about 16, about three weeks. About three weeks of previews is what is average, but not, not for Merrily, 44. Oh no. So the previews rolled on and a lot certainly happened. 
changes were made and they weren't line tweaks they were like script was rewritten the whole characters cut replaced with new ones main thing they were trying to change was the notes from the audience whether they didn't understand what was happening the signposting of time changes and who was being who when wasn't making sense to people so not even the names on the t-shirts not even the names on the t-shirts was helping the biggest change was the firing of jim weisenbach as franklin basically just didn't think he was good enough is the thing which you'd think you notice in rehearsals not like when you get to previews oh he's not very good he's the lead and he's not very good <laughs> yeah, they've had six months of sitting around getting to know each other I, probably trying out some songs idea seemed to be is that in person he was that sort of affable everyman which is what young franklin is supposed mm. to be he wasn't a broadway lead he was a nice guy who also could sing the creatives turned to another member of the cast to play Franklin. And just to make life easier, they chose the other Jim in the cast. So Jim Weisenbach was replaced by <laughs> Jim Walton. So opening night was delayed to give Walton time to rehearse. Then opening night was delayed a second time when the original choreographer left the show. Then finally, on November 16th, Merrily We Roll Along opened. The opening line of Frank Rich's review for the New York Times read, To be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. The review's really good in terms of like, you can tell it's this man who doesn't want to write a scathing review of someone who he really admires, but is saying, this show's not good. The show doesn't work. It's got yeah. songs that are great, but songs that are great does not hold a show together if it mm. doesn't make sense. And if the cast can't carry it. The show was universally panned by critics yeah. and most agreed that having teenagers play cynical, jaded, broken 40 year olds for nearly all of the first act, because all of act one is, it only yeah. takes them up to about their 30s. Yeah. It's only the very end of the show where they're 20 year olds. Just didn't work. So Clive Barnes for the New York Post was one of the only positive critics saying that, that people should go and judge for themselves instead of being swayed by gossip and criticism, which is a weird thing for a critic to say. He's like, don't listen to the critics, go and judge for yourself. I thought I would get some information from you before. Yeah, I thought that's what you were paid to do, but no, okay, fine. <laughs> But yeah, the one good review wasn't enough and Merrily closed after 16 performances. Oh! Yes. oh but, but they also had 44 before that. They had 44 previews, but they oh, were, that, was, that was a changing show. So that was, who knows if that show was the same every night. <laughs> it's also rumoured to have lost close to $1.5 million. Wow! So it's gone on to have two London productions, the one you spoke of with Jenna Russell, and also one with Maria Friedman. There's also been regional American productions, and there's also been a New York encore production, like there was of Anyone Can Whistle, and that was, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was in that, as Charlie. Ah! Yeah, fun. It's never had a Broadway revival, and the latest Merrily News is that film director Richard Linklater, I think is how you say it, uh, is making a film of Merrily with Ben Platt, Beanie Feldstein and Blake Jenner and like his film Boyhood it's due to be filmed over time so that they will age with their characters which I think is super exciting amazing yeah in summary what do you think about Merrily We Roll Along? Well now that I've heard about the original cast it doesn't surprise me actually and having seen it you know having seen the documentary it was kind of I was like yeah 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 but when we've now we've talked about it I'm like hmm actually that, do that doesn't work. The reason why I was so into it was because it was these older people who were kind of going back through and that's why it's heartbreaking. And actually it just doesn't have the same resonance, I would think, with a younger cast. So 
I think it's the production's fault and I think it's how Prince's fault. Just to clarify, Ellie had, Ellie had anger in her eyes then when she said it's how Prince's fault. Herb. Yeah, Herb, Herb's pretty much to blame from like 30 years before. I totally agree. I, I can sort of understand it, but I think the show itself is really stunning. I do still think it's tricky though. I think if it wasn't tricky to do, there'd have been a Broadway revival of it. He's so popular. He's such a good sell now that it's crazy that there hasn't been, you know, there's been Broadway revivals of shows that he wrote later than Merrily We Roll Along. And also I think probably what's quite hard about the show is you have to retain, as an audience member, you have to retain a hell of a lot of information. Things aren't retold to you because they can't be because people don't know those things yet. Mm. So you have to keep remembering and going, oh yes, I remember that person did that in act one. Do you remember that? That's what makes this poignant. Mm, Whereas say the first time that Frank meets Beth, it's hard to not just go, they get divorced later. Or (laughs) do you know what I mean? Rather than going, oh, they also had this nice interaction and they had good times as well. We already know the answers. That's very true. And I guess you could, to help people remember, stitch it onto their show. (laughs) The other weird thing, they don't necessarily all say character names. Some of them say character names and some of them say character traits. So Mary's doesn't say Mary, it says best pal. No. And it's just so, it's so confusing. It's such a bad choice. I wish the costume designer had been like, fuck off, Hal Prince. You go do your job and leave me to do my quick changes and they will have 7,000 coats each. Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim didn't work together again until 2013 when they were both in their late 80s. Sondheim for a long time before Merrily had felt a lot of hostility from Broadway critics. Hostility for both him and for Prince. For in his words being successful artists he felt like they weren't allowed to be both artistically and commercially successful. So Sondheim had a fractious relationship with critics and I think I understand how hard it must be to create a show to spend years on it and then, and you know, put love and your soul into it and then to have people tear it apart. It must be really difficult. And sometimes likened it to someone coming up to a mother and telling her all the things that are wrong with her new baby. But as a theatre critic said, not very many mothers are charging people $50 to see their new baby. And that is where it becomes a tricky argument because... Yeah. Yes, it's very difficult to create something and then have someone criticise it. But at the same, but you are also asking people to pay to see what you've created. I always wondered as well how personal Merrily was to him, because obviously it's about the theatre. Yeah, he says that he's only ever written one autobiographical song in his whole entire life. And it's in Merrily. It's uh, Opening Doors, which is, uh, it's not a particularly emotional song. It's just a song about working hard and... Yeah. being said no to a lot but he says that is the only autobiographical song so Sondheim was quite broken by Merrily Roll he rolled along and he he said that was it he said he was not going to work in musicals anymore he was done with musical theatre so he rallied and he decided to do another show but he he felt like Broadway didn't deserve that much heart and soul of him next time so he wrote Sunday in the Park with George for Playwrights Horizon which is a non-profit off-Broadway and it worked because Sunday in the Park is a great Sundtime show and obviously won him a Pulitzer. It had a Broadway transfer. It did very, very well. But I do think Merrily might have broken the Prince and Sondheim partnership. So all of his next shows are with director and collaborator James Lapine. So Sunday in 1984, Into the Woods in 1987 and Assassins in 1919. Which brings us to 1994 and our last show to discuss, which is Passion. 
Passion sits in a weird place because it didn't flop like Anyone Can Whistle or Merrily in the sense of number of performances. It ran for 280 performances, which isn't like amazing, but it's not awful. The critics loved it. It feels very like when I listen to it, very critic. Yeah, so critics really liked it. The people who didn't like it were the fans of Stephen Sondheim, it quite divides them, and audiences. So I'm surprised it ran for 280 performances because the audiences <laughs> reportedly hated it. <laughs> I do think criticism works. If everyone's telling you it's the show of the year, you'll go. Even if you come out of it going, oh, I thought that was awful. And I will say, for me personally, (laughs) and I do like to say it's my podcast so I can do whatever I like, I find this musical hateful. As much as Ellie loved Merrily We Roll Along, I think I hate Passion (laughs) that much. So Passion is based on the Italian film Passione d'Amore, thank you. Oh. Uh, which itself is based on an Italian novel called Fosca by, here we go, Ingino Ugo Tacchetti. I nearly got there. The book was an autobiographical tale. For this one, I'm going to go into the plot quite deeply. I, I need you all to, under- to know the plot to understand my ranting about it. So I'm going to try and read it in my most neutral voice. It's set in 1863, and we follow the story of Giorgio Becchetti, a soldier who's being posted to an outpost of northern Italy. He leaves behind his married mistress, Clara, and they promise to write to each other while he's away. So a lot of passion, the musical, is letters. So it's people singing letters. Perfect for a um, musical. Perfect. And what makes it more confusing is they don't necessarily sing the letter they're writing. They sing the letter they're reading a lot. At the new post, Giorgio makes a good impression on his new commanding officer, Colonel Ricci. Uh, He's a popular and well-liked member of the garrison. He also meets Dr. Tambori, who is charged with looking after the colonel's cousin, Fosca, who suffers from hysterical convulsions. She's a recluse. She only wears black. She's pretty depressing to be around and she seeks seclusion in the company of her books. So, Giorgio lends her some of his books. This makes Fosca heavily reliant on Giorgio for some reason, because once you give someone a book, that's practically marriage. Now, it's in the lyrics, and it's all anyone ever goes on about, but it's not in any of the plot descriptions. It's important for you to know, Fosca is ugly. She's never played by an ugly actress, but their eyebrows are always made bushier, their skin's pale, she's given a mole or two, she's got a greasy wig on. Uh, I'm not doing well at hiding my dislike of this show. (laughs) In her letters, Clara warns Giorgio to keep Fosca at a distance in case she becomes too obsessed with him, because that's what women do. But it's too late, because Fosca's already there. When Giorgio announces he's going on leave for five days, five days? she dissolves into hysteria. There's a lot, that's her illness, by the way. Her illness is hysteria. She makes him promise that he'll return and that he'll write to her while he's away. He does write to her while he's away, but in the letter, he tells Fosca to basically back down with her feelings that he's never gonna reciprocate them because he's in love with Clara. And he also tells Fosca that Clara is married. When he comes back, Fosca is like, you shouldn't be having an affair with a married lady. I don't want to see you anymore. And he's like, great. Brilliant. Got rid of her. Fosca's now dying. Of course she is. So the doctor asks Giorgio to visit Fosca as he believes she'll only get better if he visits her, which is really sound medical advice as well, I think. So Giorgio visits her. Fosca asks him to write a letter for her while she dictates to him. Another confusing letter point. She writes a letter 
that she wishes Giorgio would write to her. So the letter starts, Dear Fosca. And he's like, Dear Fosca, are you writing a letter to us? He doesn't do that. There's no humour in this show. There's not one moment of humour in this show. <laughs> then the colonel decides to tell Giorgio about Fosca's past. And she's been married. She was married to an Austrian count. And he took all of her family's money. And she discovered that he already had a wife and child. And then he left her penniless. And that's when she first became ill. Giorgio gets another letter from Clara, which says that she's worried that Giorgio won't love her as she gets older. And he goes for a walk to read her letter in private, but Fosca follows him. There's a rainstorm. Ooh, the romance. Mm. And Giorgio basically tells Fosca to fuck off for a bit. Oh. And then she has an hysterical episode when he says that. So he carries her back to the garrison in the rain. And this makes Giorgio sick. So now everyone's sick. So Giorgio's oh. sick. And I'm guessing he gets a real diagnosis, like hypothermia or the flu or something like that. But due to his illness, he's given sick leave to spend in Milan. So Fosca goes to see him at the train station before he leaves. And he, she says, I'm sorry for everything I've done and I'll leave you alone. Um, and Giorgio says, that's a good idea. Um, just forget about me. And she says, I can't forget about you. You're everything to me. I die for you. Very intense. Anyway, then the doctor tells Giorgio that he should stop seeing Fosca as she is bad for his health. His health. Giorgio's health. Giorgio just was out in the rain. Fosca's got nothing to do with it. Anyway, <laughs> Clara's decided not to leave her family and her child for Giorgio. So she says, would you maybe wait a bit while, until the child's older? Then I'll leave for you. And, and he says, no, no more affair. We're ending the affair because he's realized he loves Fosca. Of course he does. He In loves her because no one will love him like she does. Um, and the Colonel, meanwhile, has found that letter that he wrote that Fosca dictated. So it looks like he wrote yeah. it to her and he challenges him to a duel. The duel's set for the next day, and that night, Giorgio visits Fosca, and they have sex. Now, the stage directions in the book strongly imply that Fosca is too weak, physically too weak, to have sex. But they still do, so... That's um, uh, Giorgio wins the duel, but he has a nervous breakdown, which is called a nervous breakdown. It's not called hysteria, it's called a nervous breakdown. Has a nervous breakdown, wakes up in the hospital months later. I didn't know they did that, the nervous breakdowns. I didn't know they put you to sleep for a month. Uh, so he discovers that the colonel survived the duel, but Fosca died a couple of days after their night together. Oh. And that's the end. And I hate it. I hate it <laughs> so much. And it feels very like of its time, doesn't it? And, and not, I, and I don't even mean like the original. What, 1994? I, I think it feels very 90s. Like people would have enjoyed that. Oh yeah, let's have a bit of Italian passion. Yes, it's all black and red. That's what I can imagine. Like, yeah, yeah. He's got very floppy hair. That's the 90s bit. Uh, would you put money into it just off the no. plot? Like, okay, good. No. Um, again, convoluted. Again, problematic. The idea that she just has this magical disease which makes her a bit like, like she, she cries a lot, kills her. She's so ill, it kills. That doesn't exist. There's no hysteria, is it a medical thing? It just makes me so angry. It is interesting that they didn't make any changes from the original. Text. No, it's really close. It's really close. So basically, Sondheim didn't read the, I mean, he did read the book, but he originally found it by watching the film. And the film is an 80s film. So it's like some very different time periods all yeah. working together there. Again. It's a very small cast and it's it's a bit more like Sweeney Todd. It's sung through. 
pretty much. There's not really any scenes. I didn't find out much about the passion rehearsal process. Sondheim and Lapine, who had originally wanted Patti Lapone as Fosca, but she turned it down to be in Sunset Boulevard in London. So really she chose, she could have been in either flop. She had a flops to choose from. So the role went to Donna Murphy. Through all my research, all the articles said the same thing. And they said in some way, isn't it incredible how beautiful Donna Murphy is? And yet she could play this stunningly ugly person. <laughs> I was like, Ugh. And there's a quote from Sondheim, which makes me dislike Sondheim a little bit, just for this quote, about the casting of Donna Murphy, in which it says, it's very hard to find someone who is beautiful and who can act and sing. So you'd think it would be easier to find someone who could do those things but who wasn't beautiful i thought good of the three things you usually look for you only need two but the singers we saw who weren't beautiful weren't as good as donna so we had like that's the end of the quote one what's your perception of beauty and also just what <laughs> what are you talking about i've never understood love stories where people just fall in love for yeah. no apparent reason like they have nothing in common they don't talk to each other they're just boom they're in love i don't understand it anywhere it just feels like a pantomime she's an insufferable character she literally meets him and is, he's like hey how's the weather and she's like i hate weather i hate my life i want to die and it, he's like oh okay hello <laughs> so i don't understand why that's not enough why can't she just have a bad personality why does she have to be like yeah why a mole she... woman mm. anyway back to my non-biased research <laughs> <laughs> Jia Shia, which I think is a good name, played yeah. Giorgio. And this was his first Broadway lead. He'd been in the ensemble of the Nathan Lane Guys at Dolls revival, but this was his first leading role. Um, his Broadway career was surprisingly short. So after Passion, he was in four more shows before he decided to quit show business altogether to be with his family more. And then he went on to be the chief of staff to a Massachusetts governor, which I really like. That's a little... And then Marin Mazzi played Clara and she wins best showbiz name ever. It was also her first Broadway lead, but she went on to have an incredible Broadway career. She was the original mother in Ragtime. Okay, so before we get to the problems of the previews, let's hear some of the score. So, uh, we have to. So, this is the final song where Giorgio tells... Fosca, he loves her, and it's called No One Has Ever Loved Me, and it's sung by Jia Shia. Without reason, love without mercy, love without pride or shame, love unconcerned with being returned, no wisdom, no judgment, no caution, no blame. No one has ever known as clearly as you no one has ever shown me what love could be like until now not pretty or safe or easy don't understand why this is a subject that needs to be explored the idea that a love where irrespective of how awful it is they're determined to keep loving you that doesn't sound like love that just sounds like dedication <laughs> It doesn't sound like Sondheim either. There's like notes, there's certain chords. Yeah. There's this like cheesiness to it. I do think it, I can see how it's very beautiful and I can see how it can be very emotional. But for me, it's so one tone that how you hear them sing then, it's how they sing the whole, they constantly sound like they're about to cry. And something I also associate with Sondheim quite a lot is being funny. There's not one joke 
in this. There's a song called Soldier's Gossip, which is the opening of like the second half of the show. And all the songs there for is to get across this point that people are gossiping about Giorgio and Fosca. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to the whole recording, I was like, oh, I like this one. And I don't, it's just slightly more upbeat. Did you hear that scream last night? Did anybody not? Your turn, Becca. She knows how to scream all right. Well, she practices a lot. I forgot, what's Trump's? Play a bloody card. So that wasn't dying, we assume. No, I think she just fell off her broom. Or they hung a mirror in the room of La Signora. Signora. So Passion started previews on the 24th of March in 1994. After the first preview, Sondheim and Lapine knew that they had some serious work to do because the audiences weren't weeping at Fosca and Giorgio's story. They weren't moved by this sort of, this different type of love. That's what Sondheim talks about a lot, about wanting to show a different type of love the audience laughed they found it ridiculous like the work they wanted to do would take some time so in the end passion ended up having 52 previews even more than merrily we roll along and pushing back their opening night so my favorite two things that they removed which i found out originally donna murphy wore a bald cap under her wig so that her hairline appeared as receding because if you needed a reminder she's ugly she needs to be ugly uglier (laughs) How can we make her as ugly as possible? So they also removed a moment where Fosca is cutting her hair off in a fit of hysteria. Um, And she says to Giorgio, when I die, I'll leave you my brain. Which is followed by, at the end of the play, when Giorgio is told that Fosca's dead, he's given a letter. That stays in the show. It's her last letter to him because it's all letters. But originally... With her brain in. No, yeah. Originally, he was given a letter and a little box which contained her brains that was in the original production that is the level of ridiculousness that was in this show that went to previews an audience saw that the man went Giorgio here's a letter and also a weird little box with her brain in that smells gross so romantic yeah so overall audiences they weren't loving the character of Fosca that was the main surprise surprise so much so that it is rumoured that when Giorgio got news of Fosca's death, cheers went up from the audience, along with shouts of die, Fosca, die. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds exactly like the plot of an op- opera. Yeah. So you'd expect to go and see this huge melodramatic. Yeah. If they're not playing to that, then it would be just so embarrassing to watch. Yeah. It opened on the 9th of May, 1994. And after various changes, James Lepine, the director, said, He said this about making changes in previews because of how audience reacts. Mm. He said, the audience reactions was just so hostile that we had to change it. We knew we hadn't solved the fundamental problem. It's one thing if people don't like it and you like it. It's another when they're not getting it. Then you have to solve it. And if they still don't like it, it's fine. So that was their attitude. They were like, as long as the audience understand it and they don't like it, that's fine. We don't want them to not understand it and not like it. The critics didn't see whatever those preview audiences saw and their reviews were unanimously positive. Variety said, Sondheim's newest show stands unchallenged as the most emotionally engaging new musical Broadway has has had in years. The LA Times said, Passion is inarguably about love untinged with the parody, satire and irony that have suffused almost every other Sondheim take on the subject of connection. Which I would argue with, like I think, especially things like company, I think that's really strong on different types of love. But this, I just, if this is everyone's idea of like what true love, I worry for people. 
not long after Passion's opening night, the Tony nominations were announced. Passion was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, the most nominations of that year. It would win four, including Best Musical. It beat Disney's Beauty and the Beast. I would, I would choose Beauty and the Beast over Passion. Donna Murphy also won Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Passion holds the record for being the shortest running show to ever win the Best Musical Tony. It's had two London productions. It's had European productions and an off-Broadway production starring Judy Kuhn. It's also had a semi-stage concert production at the Lincoln Centre, which starred the original, original Fosca, Patti Lapone. She's She got to do it. Uh, it also st- starred Michael Severus and Audra McDonald. And it was directed by Lonnie Price. Look at that. Full circle. That's the end of Passion. How do we feel about it? Am I... Obviously, very balanced, very fair <laughs> telling of Fosca's story. I mean, it's not, I've had a thought that I wonder whether we're just incredibly cynical. Maybe we're broken. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe. I'm refusing to even that. listen to that <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I think the reason I struggle with it so much is because I think, I think Sondheim writes pretty well for women overall. And this just feels like such a step backwards. Both the women are just like the whole of the opening is Clara and Giorgio talking and Clara's naked for 10 minutes on stage. And you're like, that's why? For who? There was a review I read where it's just like, it's beautiful. She has all these pretty dresses and it just highlights how pretty, pretty, pretty Clara is. But Fosca's ugly, 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 ugly. And it was like, I'm like, guys, is this, what? Have I missed something? Like, uh, Sontime talks about it. He says he wants to tell Giorgio's story of how he falls in love with Fosca. But I, I still don't really understand how that does happen. If it is just that, you know, if he explains it in his final song, then it just seems to be because, well, it's quite tiring to, to not be with you. So it's just easier this way. Sorry, I'll stop. What do you think? <laughs> the, the fact, you know, that obviously women are in two camps. They're either pretty or they're ugly. That's all. You know, there's no personality whatsoever. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's incredibly insulting. There's no <laughs> um, But like we said, I just can't believe that he didn't change the source material in the slightest. In the slightest. Just give her an actual disease. That's what I wanted. Yeah. I want her to have actually something. That's, I just want her to not have hysteria. I asked this question to everyone, but I think it's quite obvious in our case. So do you have a favourite, least successful Sondheim show? Oh, I just don't know. <laughs> Merrily. Yes, I'm with you on that one. It's just so great. Oh, well, thank you. That's it. Thank you for being my guest. It's this so fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. And thank you very much for listening. And I would really, really recommend Lonnie Price's film, The Best Worst Thing That Could Ever Happen. It's on Netflix, if you have that. So do have a watch. It's really good. And I'm sorry to be boring, but please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have the time or give us, recommend us to friends. Thank you so much for your support because it's a brand new podcast. It's really, really appreciated. And I really love making it. So I hope you guys keep wanting to hear it. Um, next episode, we are talking about the producer Cameron McIntosh and I'm joined by the lovely Ben Clare. So do give that a listen. That's just the end of the podcast. Okay, that's good because my cat just came in and started meowing. So I was yeah. like, oh.
that you faced it, I owe. 